Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. What you're about to hear is a live recording of an event that took place at the Open Book Festival in September 2022. Gertrude Fester, Bulelwa Mabasa, and Harman Latakhan speak to Max Dupria about journeying back to document gaps in search of healing. Here's their conversation. Hello, people. Um, the genre we're talking about today is really my favorite. It's my favorite kind of book to read um, because memoirs and autobiographies tell the stories of the past without a third, without a second person, without an outside writer. And that, I think, is, is extremely important to understand history is to find out how did people live? How did they see it firsthand? Um, one of our books today is called A Notebook, and the other two are called Memoirs. And it takes a lot of guts to write a book like this because it means exposing uh, yourself and your past. I once tried to write uh, about my work a few years ago but I wasn't brave enough. And uh, I couldn't write about my personal life. So there's a whole big book without me in it. <laughs> because, so I couldn't call it a memoir autobiography. I, it, I ended up calling it, the title was Pale Native Memories of a Renegade Reporter, which is a nice way out. <laughs> so what is the difference between an autobiography and a memoir? As I understand it, autobiographies are written by famous people who you want to know, who share their lives, and you want to know what was their, what were li their lives like. Well, as a memoir uh, are a format in which writers use their life and experience in service of a larger theme uh, or idea. Um, a reader might pick up uh, a memoir because they're interested in the theme rather than that they want to read about the personal detail of the writer. And so today, our three excellent books uh, are actually both. They're autobiographies and they're memoirs, and written by two very, three very special and talented and interesting people. Uh, Bulerwa Mabase is a top land reform lawyer and member of the Presidential Expert Advisory Board on Land Reform and agriculture, and as you will find out, also a childhood TV star. Oh. <laughs> Gertrude Fester is a former, and I don't, in Cape Town you don't need to introduce Gertrude Fester, but she is a former political prisoner, of uns in Afrikaans say, a tronkvoel. My A teacher, a poet, and uh, and a women's rights campaigner. Hanban Latakhan is a seasoned journalist, a poet, and an author, and a professional outsider, <laughs> which is what the word Randair uh, in his book title means. He's also been, been called a flaneur, a man who saunters around observing society, is the definition of that. So, the, the title says, of our talk, says, 
we are that you wrote in search of healing. Did you write? Why did you write this book? And did you write it in search of healing for a little while? So when I was approached um, by a publisher to write my story, uh, the brief was, I think, much less interesting than the product. The brief was, we want to know your story, being a black woman that has catapulted into a successful lawyer, an attorney in an industry that is male-dominated and in an industry that is known to be very conservative. But then when I sat down and I started writing the story, it felt wrong for me to treat it as my story. So I think in a cheeky way and maybe <laughs> self-indulgent way, I realized that actually the story is about where I come from. And it's actually about addressing the grievances unspoken and spoken of my great-grandparents and my grandparents who were in an era where no matter what they did, their potential, their dreams, their aspirations were never going to, to materialize. And so in this memoir, I think I actually felt that I needed to imprint their lives, their stories, themselves into the wider domain. And so within that, I found it to be extremely cathartic and, and very painful at times because I think I let it out all bare without um, knowing that I was actually doing that. So yes, absolutely, it was, um, it was a very deep, uh, deep process that, that actually was um, not just about me, but about all those deferred dreams and aspirations. Gertrude, did you write for healing? Kanganza Botsi, my face, Gertrude. I, well, it was, I first had a play that I composed in my head in the prison, and uh, then I just got very busy with politics and I had no time, but it was always a political and historic imperative, because I was told by UWO members and UCO members, look, you could have write our history, because, you know, women, I sent this earlier this today, uh, people came and interviewed us, we were about 6,000 members in UCO and then UO, um, and they get our story all wrong. So it, was, so it was important to write the story, but also to write the story of a black woman and black women prisoners. So I tried to incorporate some of that, but of course, it, with military veterans coming on board, it was extended to a chapter on autobiography and a chapter on women's struggles and also why I wanted to meet the general who <laughs> interrogated me. Thank you. Herman, I read your book. Jeremy Brood, if there's somebody, if there's somebody in need of healing, it's <laughs> 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 <is> Herman Waterhorn. <laughs> Did you, did, was there a sense of healing, of dealing with the past, of closing a chapter? Um, I would say so, yes. Um, halfway, not totally. It was actually settling a score. Firstly, it's dedicated to women, single mothers. It's all about my mother, really, who raised me as a single mother in apartheid South Africa. 
and exposed me to a wide variety of different people. We went to District 6, we went to the Boer Cop. She had gay friends, she had drag queen friends. So it's, it's um, a tribute to her, but it's also um, a dig at the NG Kirk, who called me a hurkind because I was born out of wedlock. And in the 60s, it was very brave for a woman to have a child out of wedlock. So they refused to baptize me. Um, and the irony is that the people today who still go to the NG Kirk are shocked at the title. I go to these book launches and say, oh, can you it, sir? And I think, you said it. You said it. Um, yeah. What I should have <laughs> brought into the thing was that what the, the instrumental role that the NG Kirk played in sustaining apartheid Sunday after Sunday, and people fell for it. They were so brainwashed. So um, they were anti-woman. The woman should be condemned to the kitchen, pregnant and barefoot, okay? That's where they saw them. Um, they were patriarchal, and also they said that black people should be apart because the Bible tells you that. Um, the Enkekerk has a lot of explaining to do. And at a recent talk in Johannesburg where Edmund Cameron was, and he came and spoke to me about it afterwards, um, there was this woman who had the cheek to get up and ask me, what is the future of the NG Kirk? And I said, but there is no future for the NG Kirk. Mm -hmm. The NG Kirk should be shut down and it should be open for homeless people. <laughs> I said, you actually have a cheek to, to ask me this because you are talking on behalf of a church that supported apartheid, supported misogyny, supported um, uh, homophobia, and called me a hurkant. So there was a bit of a shocked sort of thing going through there. Um, and, <laughs> and then he said, yes, but I'm trying to work within the church to change it. And I thought, you know, it's like saying I'm working for the Nazis from within to change it. You know, it doesn't sit well with me. So unfortunately, it wasn't a very successful talk. I'm I don't sure. think I'll be... <laughs> Two women came up to me afterwards and said, Oh, we are come to your book to go, but now we are going to go like Peter Dirk Eyes. You know, Evita Besiren. And I thought, Ach, darlings, please, go home, die gently. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I unfortunately know exactly what you're talking about because my two older brothers are Dominis oh. in the Engierkerk. No. I'm yeah. also in the Engierkerk, but I'm in the stepchild, the only black... Oh. The only black church that's in the Mudderkerk. Oh, and at okay. the same synod in October 1857, when it was decided they must have separate outchurch joined. Oh, you see. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a bit about childhood. Um, and to be honest, the only childhood that I can vaguely uh, associate myself with is Hermann's, because mine was fairly dysfunctional too. And I was almost envious of the way that you talked about your family. And you talked about your father and your mother and your grandfather and your gra grandmother. Can we share a few thoughts about that thing, about childhood? So my childhood was exceptionally joyous. It was rich in culture, in anecdotes. I grew up and in... And music. And music, uh, especially music. So I grew up in a four-roomed home, which did not have a lot in the material sense. 
So in the evenings, my grandmother would dish up and she would dish up up to 20 or 30 plates mm -hmm. because there were people who lived around the neighborhood who were homeless, who didn't have, uh, or who were, you know, kind of sidelined as drunkards who knew that a place that they would go to um, would be my home and they would be accepted. And in fact, my grandfather, you know, used to say to us that actually um, we are rich because everyone who is hopeless and homeless and loveless finds a place of refuge in my home. So I never had an inkling. My idea of rich or poor was never about material. Mm -hmm. It was about love and joy. And so I had a very rich childhood where I was affirmed. I was told I was bright. I was told, I mean, I remember when my mother, every time my mother gave me a bath, she would say, you know, you're black and you're beautiful. Um, and I didn't know how much I was going to need that later on in life. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, of course, as life turned out, um, everything that I went through post my formative years was the opposite. Yeah. So, so, so I, I'm a product of a rich childhood that was filled with, with music and love and joy and, and dreams. And I was, I was affirmed and I was enabled in that. Bulelwa's father founded the Soweto String Quartet. Correct. And became, oh, yeah. oh, became world famous. Yeah. Lovely. Yes. I also had a wonderful childhood, vacillated between, I'm first generation urban, so it vacillated between Maitland and every single holiday or every opportunity, we'd go to Makis Rafir near the, Kanko, near the Kango Caves. And there was my grandmother. Now, can you visualize this grandmother in a starched white uniform with a triangular white veil on her white horse called Rosmeat <laughs> to catch the babies in the whole of the area, both white and black. That is my grandmother. My grandfather was a farmer, well, a small holding. And my father was a teacher, he was 21 years older than my mother, and so the family didn't actually like the fact that he was getting married to um, a plus doctor. But nevertheless, they were so embarrassing, they kissed all the time in front of <laughs> us, and we didn't like it. Yes, and very, and I was also spoiled, eh? I was born on the 4th of July. It was an American Independence Day or Rwandan Freedom Day for them. It was my father's birthday. Now, can you imagine being born on your father's birthday? My elder sister was called Salome, and so they wanted to change our names, but anyway, they didn't work out. So, yes, I was also affirmed in the sense I always came first in class, and then one day my father was reading my report to someone on the phone, and it was A and A and A, and it said second, and my father said, second in class. I said, the teacher made a mistake. <laughs> so, yes, I, and education was always very important, very important education. But also we went to the farms and we would have all the cousins together. We'd have concerts and we'd sing and we'd dance and we'd have great fun with the sheep and the cattle and the, the river. It was idyllic. It was called Funknes Rafir and it came from the Swartberg Mountains and it had weeping willow trees on either side and huge rocks. Now, can you imagine? Then there were the 
ongenete boom en hy was die skier met die bultong en die perskes al. En we performed there for the families and all the families would come to the farm. So yes, only afterwards they said we must be very careful because the black people are going to catch us. The one neighbor said and then I worked out subsequently that was Langa March. So that was the first sort of confrontation with all is not well in the country. And then the other thing is, I went to St. John's Catholic School because the Catholics are very good educationists, my father said, even though I'm in here. And so we went to the Catholic school and what happened is the children left because they were poor. Then we had people leaving our area because of the Group Areas Act. And then our church, which is in the city, the people left District 6 and they had to leave. So then I realized things are not that good in the country. But at home, all the kissing, and you had to kiss all the uncles and the aunts and kiss, 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 lots of kissing. Oh, yeah. Hermann, <laughs> <laughs> quite, a, quite a contrast to the life you had as a child and as a teenager. It, it's, your book reads like unlikely fiction. Um, and I, because Herman and I have known each other without physically meeting for many, many years, and I thought, there's a God's wonder that you're still vaguely normal and actually quite a nice guy. <laughs> With an accent on give us a, Give us a run through your, your life. Oh. Okay, um, I was born out of wedlock, and then I grew up in Clove Street um, in boarding houses with my mother, who was very poor. Sometimes we only had white bread and coffee to eat, and she would make a big thing out of it and make out like it was a ter terribly theatrical evening with candlelight and oh. Vicky Leandros playing in the background. Oh. I have a Vicky, oh. nee. And um, so it was like quite... Um, and, and she pushed through. She was a strong woman. I was surrounded by a very strong woman. Um, and she took me to District 6 and to the poor cop, and as I said previously, I was subjected to a whole village of eccentric, wonderful people who looked after me while she was at work. Um, and there was a school teacher who taught me to write and read by the age of five, and she had a big influence on my life in one of these boarding houses. But these boarding houses were common, eh? Common, but they were fantastic. It was like Ethel Fugard, people are living there, hello and goodbye, um, sort of outsiders. And um, then she couldn't look after me anymore, and I went to uh, um, orphanage for a year. Um, well, financially, she suffered. So, um, and then after that, I had to go to a cousin of hers who was known as the Hanging Judge, Bram Latigan, who was the most revolting man. Um, and they were very conservative, and I had to sit in this house with these conservative people coming from the boarding houses of Clough Street. And every Sunday, she would ask me, his wife, what did the Dominie say today? You know, and she had six other children, but I was the one who had to tell them what the Domini said. Mm -hmm. Until I one day said to her, the Domini said, your ma's a papoos. <laughs> and that was the end of that. <laughs> I had to return back. I'm only seven now, but I had enough. I had enough of the Domini. I had enough of that cuck. You know, 
and that lappie hanging there caught his liefde. And I just thought, no, this is it. I've had enough. That's why my, my rebellious streak sort of kicked mm. in. And then later I joined with UDF and, and ANC and so on. Um, in any case, so it was rough in the sense that the orphanage did have an impact on me when you're six and you go to an orphanage, psychologically you feel abandoned and for the rest of your life that feeling sort of goes with you, mm. you know. At the same time, I've thought about the fact that if I were black in that period, 1970, mm. see, 1970s and 60s, mm. would I have had access to a good orphanage, because it was good, and to a good school that I went to, ironically called Jan van Riebeek. I always thought that the school started the country, because that's how they, <laughs> you know, because the way they taught history. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know, and I sat there, now I'm like nine or eight, and I think, but how did the school start South Africa? <laughs> Took me a little while to sort that out. You know, but I did sort it out in the end, and I realized, but this is a whole lot of cuck, you know. <laughs> it didn't start when he arrived, but okay. So, um, and I think that if I didn't have access to, because of my white skin, to white influential people, um, you know, I, I was lucky. I think that if, if my story had to happen in, let's say, longer, mm. um, I would have not have been as lucky to tell her today. It wouldn't have been... Mm, it, and that is why I'm so for memoirs and autobiographies, yeah. is that there's a whole lot of unmined potential out yeah. there of stories to be told in South Africa. We have only just begun to tell our stories mm. and talk about our pain and reaching out to each other. It is only the beginning. Mm. So... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk about fathers because um, Herman also has an interesting story to tell about his biological father. But Bulelo, I want to come to you first, yeah. and 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 Gertrude also because the relationship between a father and a daughter. Um, I have an adult daughter, a very strong daughter, and I love her very much, but I'm still puzzled by. What is this relationship, or what should it be? Um, your relationship with your father blossomed when you were a teenager. Because uh, in the beginning, you complained a lot about your father <laughs> being too strict. Oh, no, he was impossible. Um, <laughs> I, I did not like my father very much. And I don't think my father liked himself very much. So, so my father was born in 1954, and he was the eldest brother of the Kemisa brothers. He had two younger brothers. And they were fortunate enough that their uncle, their, their mother's brother, formed the first orchestra, black mm. orchestra in Soweto. Mm. And so my father had trouble at school. And, um, and of course, the, the education system at the time was not concerned about black children. So he probably had learning difficulties. It was until he was introduced to playing the cello that he realized that he was exceptionally talented. And in fact, his father was a self-taught, um, so he taught himself how to read and write music and he became a, a choir maestro and a founder of a church choir. So the music gene was, was both maternal and paternal. 
And so, but being a boy growing up in apartheid, in 1967, they were discovered as a young quartet to go and play for Lady Aberdeen in Scotland. So they go to this opportunity and they get there. But because of South Africa being South Africa at the time, all the sanctions were being placed on South Africa and they ended up not performing because they were from South Africa. And um, so that was, I think, my, 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 my father's first interaction with the effects of apartheid and so forth. So in my head, now that I think about it as an adult woman, I think that was his gripe with life uh, for so many years that he ended up kind of getting a nine to five job at the SAB. Very, very unhappy man um, and exceptionally strict. But something interesting happens when I become a teenager at the age of 13. That coincided, he was about 39 years old. That coincided now with the dawn of democracy. And I think he sat down and he thought, bugger this. Um, I'm leaving my nine to five job. I'm going to follow my dream. I'm starting the Soweto String Quartet. Oh, wow. And it was a big gamble. But lo and behold, Nelson Mandela sees this group, the, you know, the Soweto String Quartet, and the whole messaging around the zebra stripes was about reconciliation and building a new country. But now this coincides with me becoming a teenager. Mm. And that's when... I met my father, yeah. the man that he was supposed to be all along. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so my father's actually my muse. Um, I, I adore him dearly. He pushed me to the limit. He was, he, he was very intentional about fathering. I didn't understand it as a child, but my father would be one of those men who would say, read the newspaper. And he would listen to your vocabulary he fed me African literature. Mm. Um, I mean, by the time that I was in high school, I had already read Achebe. I had already read Sirote. Wow. I was, but he never explained it to me. So it's only now that I'm, adult and I, I'm an adult and I'm thinking he was a parent in such an intentional and deliberate way that he was so ahead of his time. And his, well, his Big misfortune was that he only had five girls, right? In a society that said, <laughs> your name is going to be relinquished. What's going to happen to the chemist's name? Mm. And he managed to raise five strong women who are doing amazing things in society. Mm -hmm. And I think that wherever he is now, well, he's late, but I think he has probably done much more than he would have had he had sons. Um, mm. and, and so I think in also in, in other ways, I, I am who I am because I'm kind of paying homage to him and, mm. uh, and honoring, um, what he was able to do. And I think that's why I've, I've become so bold and brazen in my, my space and my place in life, because I watched him yeah. literally chart a path, um, mm. that, 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 uh, that is timeless, really. So, oh, I Thank adore you. my dad. She had a, de she had a decolonized uh, childhood. Yes. Yes. I mean, reading Achibe, you know, I yes. really, I only discovered, we actually had, at English One at UCT in 1972, we had a protest in St. George's Steps because we didn't have a single African or South African writer on wow. our entire curriculum. curriculum. And you actually read it as a child. <laughs> 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 That's a high five to my dad, yeah.
And Gertrude, was your father a, a patriarch? Very, very gentle, quiet, principal of a school for 47 years, a church school. My mother was the one who'd say, beat them, beat them. And he just wouldn't beat us. And um, <laughs> I just remember, be, I don't know how come I was alone in the car with him. We went for drives and show the beautiful nature. I actually start the book off with uh, the drive around the peninsula where I see this favorite beach of mine. So that was the one little gripe I had with my father, little gripe. Romans, I don't know if it's Romans. What is Romanian over here? There's one about the, the coin and crack, the, the coin. Something about the coin, man, the coin. You must pay dividend to the, to oh, the yes, government. That, oh. yeah. that could have been a problem, but he, my, fo my father died in 1967. But I do remember g going on this drive with, with him, with the whole family, and I saw this beach. You come round Hart Bay, and you see that stretch of white, pristine beach of Nurtuk. Please. The turquoise water and the green trees. And I say, oh, that's my favorite beach. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Three years old. Well, we can't go there. Why not? Well, the government says so. But, you know, beach is beach. And uh, why come only for white people? And what are you doing about it? <laughs> and my father then said, um, well, the government is very powerful. And I apparently said, now this was said, Derek, when I was detained, my mother said, and then I apparently said, well, when I'm big, I'll do something about it. And then, of course, you know. And then it, you did. And I did, yeah, well, and yes, and so he was, I remember his gentleness, um, very quiet, but strong. He also stuttered. Much to the amusement of people around us, but he was really gentle and was lovely. Yeah, and, uh, but I must just add this thing about the first feminist that I met in my life. And my dad died in 1967. I was then at seven at Harold Cressy High. I chose to go to Harold Cressy High, even though it was a school right next to us. Because I thought Harold Cressy was for clever children, and I'm very clever. So <laughs> I should go there. <laughs> and... Um, so my dad passed on, and there were all these uncles around him, the patriarchs. And the now, I think many of you know that if the father, where the breadwinner dies, these girls must all go and work. And my or mother, get married. Or, yeah, that's the other alternative, right? That's all you're good for, eh? <laughs> so my mother said, well, my daughters will all have professions, and I'll work my fingers to the bone. So yes. That, that are my, those are my parents, very loving. And I must say, I'm also, I was also a very cheeky little girl. My mom was only 42. I didn't realize she was so young. And then, then this uncle came and that uncle came. And then I said, oh, mom, at this stage, you're going to be competing with Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and then no other boyfriends ever came, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a bit of a precocious little... <laughs> 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 Herman, I was... I was touched by your story of how you actually went to live in the Salvation Army quarters near the Foreshore mm. because your father, who had a problematic life, lived there, and you went to live there to understand the road that he had traveled. Yes. Yeah, that was a difficult journey. Um, I 
when there was a man who walked up to me with bare feet, barefooted man who came and begged for me one day in the street. I was um, in matric, mm -hmm. and I looked at him and I but, and I thought, but this is my father, and he said, he's an, was an alcoholic. And he said, I'm living in the Salvation Army at the moment. And I remember I was very arrogant and I was 18. And you know, you're bulletproof and you think, oh, how revolting. And often I looked down on him. And then when I grew older, I realized, okay, we're flawed. And, you know, we're not all perfect, which sounds like a cliche. But I then thought, okay, I've got the money to go and rent a flat. But I wanted to go specifically into the dark heart of the Salvation Army to experience what he experienced. Um, I'm also that sort of journalist. I mean, when I wrote about the tent city in Seapoint, I spent two days there with the people. So it was a sort of, on the one hand, to make peace with him and to find out why he, what he experienced in the Salvation Army. Um, and then also to make notes and interview people and find out why they were there which I have, which is like this high, and could be a novel one day. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, it was an interesting experience, and it, it brought a lot of relief um, to go through that. I could stay for three months, but I, I decided to stay for a whole year. It's quite mil militant, uh, yeah, militaristic. Yeah. Mm. They call each other major and sersant, and I thought, oh, and then there would be an alarm that went off in the morning. I thought, oh, yeah, then we'd have breakfast upstone, you know. And I thought, but this is like being somewhere in an army camp, <laughs> you know. But I quickly want to just get back to you about the beaches, if I may, just quickly. Yeah. You know, I've realized also that people of my age, white people, have a certain set of memories. And I was unaware of it. Until one day on Facebook, I put a picture of the Ritz Plaza Hotel's revolving restaurant. And there I was sitting as a 10-year-old boy with my dad in a suit and his wife. And we're all white. And um, then my friend Rona, who is colored, she identifies as colored, so I put it in... in um, whatever you call it. Yeah, so she said to me, Herman, you know, we weren't allowed to go there. And I suddenly thought, oh, it never struck me, eh? Mm. I never, when I put these pictures up on Facebook and then there's all these white people from my childhood and that made me realize that as a white person, I should be more conscious of the memories I share with people. And I must realize that there was a time, because I was too young to, I was too stupid to realize that this was the situation. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm older and I can look back, there is, there must be a discussion there. We must wow. all, we must get together and talk about this one day and say, you have that memories of a lovely Luritz Plaza Hotel, but mine is that I, I wasn't allowed there, yeah, except yeah. to serve you. Let's, let's move on to adult life. We're running out of time. Okay. Um, Gertrude, a large part of your life was with the United Women's Organization. Before prison, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really think that the United Women's Organization doesn't have enough of a place 
in our history and in our minds. Because we're talking unity movement, we're talking UDF. But yeah. tell us about, about that. It was such a large chunk of your life. Yes. Uh, some people were here this morning. I recognize them. And I actually said that a book was written, and I won't mention the author, he knows who he is, on the UDF. But he did not mention that United Women's Organization, we were first United Women's Organization, later we became UCO, United Women's Congress, when we joined with the Women's Front, that we were actually the foundation of the activities in the Western Cape, because as many of you know, it was launched here. So people came from all over the country, so we had to do like, women's work, but also logistics in terms of accommodation. Zubayda Bray would tell you about how they cooked and they, how, all the work they did and everything. So yes, the women's, I do actually have a book published in 2015, but I made a mistake, I allowed a German publisher to publish it and the, the book was like 2,000 rand and I promised my friends I was gonna rewrite it. So I am gonna, because Erica, may, she may not be here, she, she'll publish it. So I actually am gonna write that, that popular version. But it was such a strong organization. The women that formed it was, were, some of them were from the 1950s, Mildred Lucia, Dorothy Shishlangu. And when they started to organize, there was a lot of tension around it because the men wanted it to be a general organization. They said, no, they wanted women only. And I remember, I don't know, Derek, if you were part of it, but at the launch, the white men were actually looking after the children and cooking the food. But some of the black men were very upset because why is, are they doing, why is it not a women's organization? People like Norma India said that she just thought, this is what she needs, you know, when she was mayor, I interviewed her that she was going through a marriage and she was again a child in the marriage because she had to see to her in-laws and these people were not, they were not nasty but they actually thought it was right that she had to do it, be a makoti. And all these little things, but you know what I think was the most amazing? It was a rigid apartheid time, mm. 1981. Mm. But somehow, branches, gardens branch, Guguletu branch, Macassar, Musenberg, Claremont, Kensington, I was in Kensington, I think uh, Sue somewhere here, she was in Gardens With Branch. With Trevor Manuel. Trevor Manuel was, yeah, that was the UDF. And then, okay, just to tell about that, what also happened with the UDF, we launched and supported the UDF. But what happened then, we had to do the, and they, oh yes, UDF also used all our area committees, right? They used all our area committees to form the branches. For the first six months, the UDF didn't have an office. They used our office in Hare Street, Mowbray. Observant Mow, Mowbray. I don't think they even paid rent. Um, but what then happened is we had the women's structures doing the UDF work and the UCO work. And what happened? Mitchell's Plain, UCO dissolved because the UDF took over. In, in Mannenberg was the same thing. In Kensington, where Trevor was, Trevor and... Uh, um, who else were in Kensington, I remember. But anyway, O'Dowd, Khan and them, they just subsumed it. So, yeah, so I, I think I'm sitting here now and I'm actually saying, Gertrude, you've got to write that book. You've got to rewrite yeah. that book. And, because it's just amazing. Then they also formed the Western Cape Civic Association. Then there was the, did, were they part of the Detainees Parents Committee? I mean, they just did such amazing work. And when the state of emergency started, and everyone that went to the prison, everyone that went to hospital with either gunshot wounds or tear gas were immediately arrested. <laughs> Gardens Branch took it upon themselves with the UCO to form neighborhood care projects, whereby we, we 
trained women in each street how to look at, how to do neighborhood care in terms of tear gas and what other wounds. And so it was just a self-sustaining, wonderful organization. And you know, just to, just to show how arrogant I am, I just did my master's degree in women and development at the Institute for Social Studies in Den Haag International University. So I thought, okay, now I'm going to join this organization and I'm going to share all these things that I learned about patriarchy and all that, 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 that. When I came to the organization, I sat there, open-mouthed. Dorothy Shishlangu, Mildred Lucia, Mam Fatu, analyzed everything. The entire Karl Marx, without using jargon, but from their own reality. So they were our political, Lynn Brown will say that, Chill Corollas will say that, it was in Uko and Uo, where we, I see Eric is also here from Gardens Branch. All of us, we actually learned politics from these women. And these women, most of them were domestic workers, but eloquent, eloquent. And yes, today I'm sitting here and I have the confidence to speak because of the fact that we in Uo, we were just, given the opportunity to speak yeah. and make speeches, you know? Yeah. So not, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to engage into nostalgic thoughts about UDF, <laughs> but then it'll take us to today and I don't want today to be depressing. <laughs> so let's move right along. <laughs> Abulelwa, you grew up in City Girl, Meadowlands, and, and yet you're the strongest legal voice on land. You have, you have an obsession about land. You write a story that really touched me, that in your house in, in Meadowlands, there was a picture of a girl, a crying girl against the wall. How did that influence you? That was my introduction to my entire life. So this painting is inscribed Verna. If you grew up in the 80s, uh, this painting was quite prolific in many of um, households in the townships. Um, it is a painting of a young dark-skinned girl. Um, she's got a little bit of an afro, she's got a teardrop, and she's got tattered clothes. And, um, and this was kind of like very kitsch, but it was like a, a painting that was quite popular in many households. And so as a five-year-old girl, I, um, I asked my father, I said, you know, um, Babam, why is she crying? And my dad, um, I don't know if he was conscious in the way that he answered the question, but that answer was quite prolific. You know, he said to me, she comes from a generation of landless people. Her land was taken away from her. And pretty much like you, when you saw how you were denied access to the pristine beaches, for me, how that landed in my mind was, I was curious to know how it is that a whole generation could be dispossessed of land. And so in a, in a very... Um, spiritual sense, I think, that curiosity stayed with me for the rest of my life to say, well, how is it that land can be taken and, and, and why? And so 43, 42 years, well, no, I was five, so 43 minus five. 
for the rest of my life then that was what was the impetus that actually drove me to choose law as a career to build a practice in a traditionally commercial corporate Stanton law firm mm -hmm. that focuses on land reform and the land question in the country. Herman, you were, uh, at some point in your book, you wonder whether you should have returned to South Africa from New York, where, among other things, he stalked Andy Worrell. <laughs> do you now, looking back at your life, do you regret coming back to South Africa? What would... Herman Lauterkhan have been if he had lived in New York? No, I don't. You know, they, there was a barman who retired yesterday in um, Klapmitz at the age of 81. Wow. And um, he was a Kosa man who came from the tra old Transkei and then the train stopped at Klapmitz and he got off there when he was a young man. And he started working there as a barman, well, first in the kitchen and so forth and so forth. And he became this well-known Bomb and everybody wanted to know him and he got along with everybody, etc., etc. And then yesterday there was an auction where they raised something like 90,000 rand for him because he's now retiring. And I thought, you know, only in South Africa. Mm. You know, I mean, it is such a heartwarming story. It is only in South Africa where we can fight the one day, hate each other, and the next day we sit over a braai place and have a board pop with boerewors. So, so I don't think that I, I'm very happy that I returned, actually. Some days I hate it. Yeah. Some days I think, oh, I was a part of the ANC. Look at them now. I'm so embarrassed. What did I think? Oh, I got <laughs> um, old, bitter lefty, you know, with the smell of vegan fart in my... <laughs> you know, can't, can't. And, <laughs> and then I think, well, I read a story like that, and I interviewed that man two years ago, and he was uh, amazing. And then I saw what everybody did in Klapmitz, which is like this boorah, you know, big boorah there, and they all loved him, and, and raised this huge amount, and... I mean, I just thought, oh, you know what, I like the South African stories, and I like the fact that we're half mad. We're not normal, you know. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I mean, yeah. it's a bit sort of like Mediterranean. Fight today, make up tomorrow, have a child. And <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sticking to uh, the schedule. I uh, invite questions from the audience. We've got uh, 13 minutes left. Any? They gobsmacked. <laughs> Here's a question. Hello, I'm Kate. My name's Candy. And I work in the space of development, law, human rights, and development. And our spaces have become extremely patriarchal through policy making. Um, and the narrative of our democracy is one that is not rooted in struggle anymore. It's one that's kind of rooted in our constitution having brought these rights and that policymakers then interpret these rights and that gets implemented. So we get very frustrated with the government, we get very frustrated about corruption, but we forget about all the activism that you spoke about, Gertrude, the fact that the UDF was formed in Mitchell's Plain, it wasn't formed on the steps of UCT. Mm. Um, 
I want to find out from you how we deal with this kind of contradiction and how we bring feminism back into the policy-making space. Are you going to take more questions? Or no, go, please. Thank you for that question, Tandi, and lovely to see you after so many years. Just to say that I've become much more realistic. Before, I wanted to solve the problems of the entire world of South Africa, you know. I now believe that we must make change exactly where we are, and just even that little space. How do we engage with policymakers? I think the whole thing about the feminist struggle, firstly, I think we are too, um, what's the word I want? We are too fragmented. We are, we are excellent women in law projects, excellent GBV, excellent women in land, but we, um, there's no coordination. So we're not speaking to one another, and I think maybe that's necessary point one in terms of even legislation or whatever. We also are not, you know, one of the organizations I started, which we were very proud of, was a gender advocacy program. And we had offices opposite parliament, and we, that was organizing grassroots women and women in parliament, and we'd have the dialogue. Unfortunately, because of a, a very male and androcentric, I think, misogynistic board, the project failed after doing excellent work. So we need that lobbying, we need to start engaging with government and also see where the gaps are because there are, you know, there are some very good MPs and some good ANC members. There still are some of them, don't worry. Uh, they may be far in, in between, but we need to explore what are the avenues, what are the strategies and how we're gonna do it. So we need to start dialogue, we need to start doing advocacy and lobbying, but I also think it's important to have intergenerational dialogue. I think people, or very many women and young women, they don't realize the, the challenges that we went through. I mean, how we had to sit, when, the first, when we first had the vote at the CODESA, that each woman, should, each delegation should have one woman with speaking rights. It was, it was only the ANC and the SACP that supported it, you know, and how we had to really lobby for all those rights that are in chapter, chapter 2, 29. Now oh, is it? Chapter point, point 9. So yes, so there's a lot of, and we've, we've lost that. But the thing that too, the, I think on the one hand, people are disillusioned and hopeless. And on the other hand, I also think that people don't, don't really, are not as creative as we were before. And I think maybe we need that good dose of old-fashioned feminism and start picking with another one another, but also having strategic um, allies. Like, I think you sound like an ally. <laughs> you know, <laughs> with, with men's organizations or other organizations, so start talking. We have to strengthen civil society so civil yes. society can actually start challenging the government because they cannot just do what they want to. And we can't wait for, for every five years and then just vote. That's not going to be it. We have to, there are also things about, you know, how looking at the electoral system, can that be reformed, etc. Mm. So there's a lot of work to be done. You know, and I think we have to do it together and dialogue, strategizing, political and strategic allies. I'll stop. Thank there. you. Is there another question up there? Um, thank you so much for the chat and the talk. I'm really, really so um, grateful to be in, the, in this presence and to hear the importance especially of these personal narratives that can help us further find you know, um, better ways to link and relate to one another, particularly in South Africa because we do struggle with that. But it's once again very interesting, especially that beach narrative and the, the posts on Facebook that 
you know, for you are held childhood memories, but for also reminder of a space and time where that happened. But also you get to escape from that feeling of distraughtness, I think. So basically my question is, how do you see us using narrative in the future, particularly that untamed space of our own personal narratives to change, you know, the country and the way we, we relate to one another? And I'm just asking maybe from just an anthropological perspective, you know, um, yeah, that's my question. Hello? So I think, I think it's important to... Um, storytelling is at the center of, of everything. I think that there's been a lot of criticism around the TRC process, around the truth and reconciliation process, and the feeling of discontent in the country that, you know, um, there's a whole a host of young people who see Mandelaism as having sold out, for example. And I think there's legitimacy in the question around restorative justice. In, and, and, rest, and restoration can only come from exchange of information and engagement. And I think that's where the TRC project uh, missed the boat. I think that now, th there is no better time than now in a country to share those stories. I mean, we sit here mm -hmm. in this panel from completely different generations um, and, and different perspectives. And I think it's because, because we'd never had an opportunity after 1994 to sit and exchange and actually reflect and get to know each other that this is, there is no better time than now to have these fora and to actually share our experiences and, and, and literature does that, you know, um, book writing does it, but I think there's many other ways in which we, we should do it. And I think this why this, 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 um, this forum is so important. And I don't think it ends with mm -hmm. writing books. And I think it, it has to be an intentional effort at all of us in our own spaces, in our workplaces, in our families, within our friendships, <coughs> to, to share and to, and to reflect and to get to know each other um, and not allow the narratives in the media uh, or the newspapers to dictate who we are, mm -hmm. but actually to take up those spaces. And then that's where active citizenship comes from. Um, and so I think it's a very important yeah. point mm -hmm. that you're raising around um, we need to take back our narrative and take back the power in our hands to decide the kind of country and the future that we want for our children. Just a short point. The yeah. DRC made recommendations. The mm. government is reticent to take yeah. it up. I must say that I am feeling, I'm very ambivalent. I'm one of the, I think it's 17,000 privileged victims from the TRC. I mean, they can't just be 17,000. One of the ideas was, one of the proposals was to continue the process. So I've been part of Kulumani that actually is looking at this process. And there's two billion rand in the president's office, which is supposed to be for reparations. The Amnesty Commission worked much better than the reparations. There are people yeah. walking around with bullets in their bodies and that's not been seen to wear as voter person. Every time nothing has happened, he's now practicing as a cardiologist. Mm. So it's an uneven process, and it mm. has to be, and it, there has to be some dialogue around that. You know, the unfinished business of the TRC. But I do think I like the idea of storytelling, sharing, dialogues. Desmond Tutu Peace Center. No. I'm going to do a creative writing workshop with them around memoirs. I did it in the prisons. I think we need to facilitate, and oh yes, there's life, what's it, life writing collective, Giles, <laughs> doing memoirs and, and writing, you know, so facilitate these dialogues. Let me, let me tell you a little story on this theme. 
Um, I worked for the public broadcaster during the time of the Truth Commission, and I was in charge of a program broadcast on Sunday night called the Special Report on the yeah. Truth Commission, mm. where we did storytelling yeah. uh, all the time. <laughs> so we did this for two and a half, I think about 90 episodes. And about six, seven years ago, the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation asked me to prepare uh, five DVDs, mm -hmm. condense some of these stories for, the, for teaching at, at high schools in South Africa. And so I did this, and it's, and it's still available, and it is, it's absolutely amazing because people tell their stories. Mm. And we, they took it to the schools, and suddenly there was a problem. Two problems with this project. One, the teachers who had to teach this fell apart because, because they're mostly so young, and it was too painful. Mm. It was too traumatic. Mm. And second problem was the children refused to believe that it really happened. No, mm. no. It, it's like you know, a fourteen-year-old, mm. and this happened in 1980. And I mean, it's like. I mean, one of the th scenes in, in one of the stories is Jeffrey Benzine, whom mm -hmm. you knew, knew. Oh, yep. Who tortured uh, so many Cape Town activists, and he then explained uh, at the Truth Commission, he, he demonstrated how he did it. The black and bag. children just said, no, that's Hollywood bullshit. It doesn't sure. really work. Anyway, so that's the theme. We got uh, time for another question. Yes, sir. Okay. Right in front. Hi, um, Gertrude. Um, I remember when you're in prison, just like you do now, you had a very amazing way of communicating with people, both on the inside and the outside, especially on the outside. Um, you used poems and prose and paintings and drawings. Do you want to just talk a little bit about how using that creative side of you helped to helped you through tough times and helped you stay in touch with other people and also helped other people on the inside? Well, the first thing I must say, thanks for the question. Um, Derek was part of the Detainee Support Parents Committee and uh, a lawyer. And yes, now can you imagine 24 hours in a cell with nothing to do? So you have to do something. So I thought, I'm not going to fall apart. I'm not going to do something. And then I sort of thinking of, oh, you know, Nelson Mandela's been in prison for 20 years and, and Mashlangu, 100 times. No, but they weren't in Section 29. Then I'd vacillate between, you know, feeling sorry for myself, and, and I don't have a pen and paper, and Brayden actually wrote a book, but he had a pen and paper. <laughs> okay, calm down. So the first thing I did was to listen to the sounds. What time is it? What can be happening? And unfortunately, it was winter, so the cells were very dark, so you never ever know. And then you had a cell outside, that you do exercise yard, but it was like a bar because there were cells on top, and I had to jog there. And then it was winter, but the birds all came. And so I have two poems. Why do you mock me, mockingbird, cheerfully perching on the bars of my cage, while I huff and puff around my greatest challenge of freedom for the day? You caress your beads and you open your wings and you fly up into the open sky and I stop jogging and I cry. So these are the things I had to do just to memorize and do the poems and discover the inner resilience 
I must also say that there's some good things with the NKK. I actually am a believer. And I must say, I know that such in 29, you actually lose interest in life. And yes, lots of people attempted suicide. And I looked at that, that bowl, that toilet bowl. And I was going to put my head in that toilet bowl, but uh, you know, I decided no. There is a God. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so it's a poetry, and then later on, when it, on trial, I could do paintings. Of course, we first had to fight on how many pages I could get a day. And then I made cards, and I sent out cards, and then all 14 of us started doing cards. You know, and so yes, so we used the creativity and... Dame, for how long was you not drunk? For solitary confinement was 104 days more or less. But you know, I was very lucky because Esa Mursa told me in 1985 that they, that they want you. All the treason trials have been questioned about you. You leave the country. And I said, no, I don't leave the country. So I was in disguise. And I went from house to house, from house to house. But once I was walking in Athlone, someone said, hi, Gertrude. I thought, what is this guy? Isn't that very good? <laughs> but then, you know, we couldn't meet. We couldn't meet. So what did we do as the women's organization? We started to have an, a women's cultural festival. Black Sash, Rape Crisis, Atlantis, Gemeentes, all the women's organization. And then there was also an organization called Gala. Oh and, yes. they want, and they wanted a, a store, and they said, Gala wants a store, but what's Gala? Oh, Gala's a gay and lesbian activist. They also could have joined the UDF. Oh, but now what's gay and what's lesbian? No, you see, uh, it's people that choose like self. But if that's the okay, so so that's the first time in a community yes, organisation. I was a member of that. Where the gay and lesbians <laughs> were used. Yeah. So we had a cultural festival and we had lots of work. And then I went to stay at my mother's house, Lynn and I, and we stayed there too long. So that's when I was caught in 1988. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, here you are. I read these three um, memoirs in the last two weeks, and I. I can strongly recommend a brilliant reading. It's fascinating stories. It tells us so much about not only the people, but about ourselves and our country. So please go out and buy it. Herman Gertrude, thank you very, very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This event was made possible by the support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture the City of Cape Town, and the Heinrich Bull Foundation. See you in the next episode. <laughs>